Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, great is the art of beginning, but greater is the art of ending. And, and it's a quote that I feel like is somewhat appropriate for us as we enter into this uh, New Year's, New Year's Eve stretch where we're, we tend to be somewhat mindful of the beginning and the end of something. And, and we tend to reflect on, on how to end well and, and how to start well. And as I was thinking about that and, and this quote in particular, I just took comfort in the fact that we can turn to the scriptures and see that God describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning in the end. All of it starts and stops with God. And, and that demands our praise. That demands our worship. And so as we uh, prepare to just open his word this morning, let's just stop and acknowledge that our stories must be anchored in his story. And that we want to give our full heart devotion in, in our souls to him and to his glory. So would you just pray with me as we begin tonight? Father, we do love you and we are grateful that we can come and we can sing that we're alive because Christ lives, that, that your love defends us, that you saved our souls. God, I pray that those, those words would be more than just songs that we sing, but they would be truths that we cling to, and that when we think about all that uh, we've experienced in this past year and all that might uh, await us in the year that is to come, that we would anchor ourselves in you, and we would worship you as the true beginning and end of all things. And so as we prepare to, to open these scriptures and this word now, Father, I pray that it would pierce us, that it would, it would encourage us, it would comfort us, and it would lead us to a greater faith and commitment of following you. And so we commit this time to you, to your praise and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So you'll have to, to bear with me a little bit this morning. I'm not feeling 100%. I'm not sure exactly what's created the sickness. I think it might have been the first quarter of OU Alabama last night that really did it to me, but maybe the more likely culprit is just this illness. We continue to just pass back and forth within my house. I think everybody else has healed up, but last couple of days have not been great for me. So I'm going to do my best. Um, I may be a little bit more subdued this morning, um, but that's okay. And uh, one of the comforts that I have in that is that uh, the effectiveness and the power of God's word is not contingent upon the tone or the energy of the teacher, right? Uh, the effectiveness of God's word is knowing that God's word is living and active, and it's his spirit. And so if we come with prepared and willing hearts, we, we give him the opportunity to truly speak uh, his truth into our lives uh, this morning, and that's, that's the hope for each of us. And so uh, here we are. We have finished Advent. We've completed this series that we were working through through the month of December, focusing on John's prologue and, and really focusing on this idea that the light has come. And, and now we kind of have these transitional weeks, and we've got about two weeks that we're going to use to really focus a little bit on this New Year's transition that is pretty common this time of year to, to think through um, all those different things that come with a new year. And then we're going to start a new series on January 13th. And, and that's really going to help set the tone for 2019. I'm really excited about 2019. Uh, that we're going to, if I were to, I guess, share a word that maybe captures a theme of what we're praying through and anticipating with 2019, it might be the word foundations, right? Uh, really kind of having a strong foundation in who God is and his character. We're, we're going to spend some time looking at Genesis and creation and some of those early stories uh, that we see <coughs> in Genesis. But then we're going to also progress through the year and really think through the foundation of the church. And we're going to spend some time in Acts. Now, we're not going to complete Genesis. We're not going to complete Acts. We don't have that kind of time in a year. But we're going to really look at some of those early parts of those books. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to that because I think it helps us uh, follow suit and lay an important foundation in our own lives. Um, now, in addition to that, 2019 is a pretty monumental year for, for UBC because it's the year that we turn 90, which is pretty awesome. 
Uh, it's a great milestone for our church, and we're very, very excited to celebrate that. So on June 2nd, we're going to have a big um, celebration to, to celebrate the history of this church and the future of this church. And so we'll have many more things to, to kind of put in front of you to challenge us by uh, for through the course of this year, and we're really excited to celebrate that. So 2019 promises to be a really exciting year. Now, speaking of birthdays, I want to start today by telling you all uh, one of the greater shortcomings and mistakes that I made over the, uh, the holiday season and, and confess to you the, the time that I forgot my dad's 70th birthday, okay? And, and now this is, to, to set the context for you, this was kind of a big deal because birthdays are fairly important in my home and in my family. We, we tend to celebrate them with greater intentionality. And, and one of the things that we do, amongst several others, is that when it's somebody's birthday, you give them a phone call and you sing happy birthday to them. And so I grew up having extended family call me and sing happy birthday to me. And so now as an adult, I teach my kids to do the same. We, we have a grandparent or a cousin. We tend to call them and, and sing them happy birthday. And so uh, you can imagine how I felt when I realized that I had gone through and completely forgotten my dad's birthday. Now let me explain to you how this, how this happened. My dad's birthday is December 18th, okay? And one of the reasons that this was an oversight was because since it was a milestone year, uh, we decided to celebrate his birthday a couple days later. And so the idea of having to send a card by a certain time or a gift or set up a lunch, it just wasn't in my way of thinking because I knew I was going to see him a couple days later. Now, uh, how this all transpired, I don't really know. But, but the fact is, is that I, I completely forgot the date of the week, of a particular day. Now, I don't know how that's possible as an adult, but I also don't know how it's possible as a pastor because we tend to live our lives through the rhythm of dates, right? Like, I just, I know the dates of almost every Sunday. Like I can tell you right now, January is the 6th, the 13th, the 20th, the 27th. December was the 2nd, the 9th, the 16th, the 23rd, the 30th. And so it would, it's kind of mind-blowing for me to think that I actually mismanaged and didn't understand what the date was of a particular day. But that's what happened. Some, somewhere after December 16th, that Sunday, on that Monday or Tuesday, something neuro, neurologically transpired in my brain that by the time I got to Tuesday the 18th, I was convinced it was actually the 17th. So I went through the whole day. The whole day working, answering emails, uh, answering phone calls, completely thinking it was the 17th. So much so that even that night, we had friends over that were asking us about when we were going to celebrate the actual day. We were telling them about that weekend. And then they said, well, when's the real birthday? And I, and I answered to a room full of adults. I said, well, it's tomorrow. It's the 18th. And not one person, three adults in the room, not one person said, well, Jeremiah, today is the 18th, Okay. I talked to my sister that day. She didn't say anything. What did you call that? I mean, like nothing happened. And so here we are next day, wake up on the 19th on Wednesday, fully convinced it's the 18th, get ready for work, bring my kids in right before I leave for, the, for, for, the, for work. And, and we call up my dad and we sing this boisterous, joyful birthday song. Happy birthday. You're seven years old. And as soon as we finish, he goes, well, that's, that's great. My birthday was yesterday. Jeremiah, it's the 18th. And I said, well, Dad, I know when your birthday is, right? Today's the 18th. Like, I'm trying to correct him. And sadly, as soon as I said, well, today's the 18th, both my son and my daughter, who are eight and six, looked at me and go, Dad, today's the 19th. So they were better in tune with it than I was. And so as soon as I realized my mistake, I felt awful. I mean, I just, I mean, I felt terrible the whole day. Just the idea that my dad had gone, his 70th birthday, not heard from me, or for my family, I mean, I just really, it was one of the, the greater mistakes and shortcomings when it comes to birthdays. That I, can, I don't think I've ever missed a birthday phone call with, with my immediate family. 
like that. And so it was really difficult for me, but what was great and what was redemptive about it was my dad's response, right? He, he wasn't harsh. He wasn't uh, vindictive. You know, I mean, he was understanding, you know, and he said, Man, don't worry about it. You know, it's fine. I know these things happen. You're always good to call. He, he even found a way to laugh about it. And his response to my failure is what really kind of helped me overcome it, so, so to speak. Now, I know that that's kind of a trivial example, but I share it with you this morning because it kind of sets the tone for what we want to talk about today and next week. How do we respond to shortcomings and failures? How do we respond to those mistakes? And, and obviously, failing to wish somebody happy birthday, there, there are many things that are more egregious than that. But we are at a season of time where we tend to look back on the year that was, and we anticipate the year that will be, and, and we tend to be somewhat mindful of our shortcomings. And a lot of times we, again, keep it somewhat trivial, and we, we voice it in terms of resolutions, right? Well, I, was, I fell short in my eating habits, so I want to have a better diet, or I fell short in how I worked out, and so I want to be a little bit healthier, right? And we come up with these resolutions and these goals, but, but even those are somewhat trivial in nature. What, what do we do when we take it a step further, and we really think about our mistakes, our failures, and our shortcomings. And how do we respond to them? And how do people around us respond to them? Because I know that there are some of you in this room, because we've all been there, where sometimes we get to the end of a year and all we can think about is how ready we are to see it go. Because of all the struggle, because of all the heartache, because of all the pain, we're just ready for something new. So we've all, at different times, had to figure out how do we respond to these shortcomings and these failures and these mistakes in our lives? And how do we do it in a meaningful way? And, and specifically, how do we respond to it as a church? And that's what I want us to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 6. And we're really only going to look at one verse today, um, and, and really just one verse next week. They'll both be from Galatians chapter 6. But let me give you a quick summary of what Paul has, has sought to address in the early stages of this letter to, to the church in Galatia. Essentially, the theme of this letter is salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ and the grace in Jesus Christ alone. And with that emphasis on grace, what we have being taught here is a continual tension between the freedom that we have in Christ and, and the tension with still following the law, right? And so there's this, this language that Paul continually evokes and utilizes through the course of this letter, reminding people that, that we get to live a life of freedom, right? And so like in chapter 4, verse 31, he, he says to the readers, he says, now don't forget that you are descendants of the free woman, not the slave woman, right? He's referencing Sarah versus Hagar, right? The, the stories of, of Abraham and back in, in Genesis. And he's saying, as a result, right, we're not held captive. We're not held in bondage to this life of sin. We, we've been set free. And he begins to discuss life that is lived in accordance to the freedom that Christ has given us. So in 5.13, I think it is, where he says, as a result, don't use this freedom and indulge in the sinful nature. Right? But the, the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he begins to give us examples of how we can begin to use this freedom, and, and that's what creates this contrast between a life that's indulging in the flesh and in, in the sinful nature versus a life that's lived by the Spirit. So that's when you get these lists, right? In chapter 5, it describes life lived in the sinful nature. It references sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, on and on and on. Right? That that's... That's the abuse of the freedom that we've been given if we live according to the sinful nature. But rather, we've been set free. We've been given life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
Now, the problem that you and I often face when we think about things like this is that, that we tend to reference and quote and memorize the fruits of the Spirit without actually figuring out how to live them out. Right? It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually do it. And I think that's where Paul presses us in chapter 6. Right? Here, here are the qualities of it. Here are the manifestations of it. Here's how you do it. And in chapter 6, where he really starts to drive our attention is through the context of relationships. Right? How do you actually demonstrate this sort of freedom in the spirit with the way in which you treat one another? How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Right? And that's really what he begins to address in chapter 6, verse 1. So let's read this first verse together, and we'll dive into that question. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. That's a fascinating verse, a very important verse, and one that I hope is a source of encouragement to each of us today. Right, and so here's how I want us to approach it. I want us to first see how Paul identifies the problem, or what, what the issue is in this particular scenario. And then he's going to lead us on a journey that helps us understand what we need to do about this problem, who needs to do something about it, and how it needs to be done. Okay, th those are kind of the, the sections and the progressions we'll walk through this morning. So, so what is the problem that Paul identifies for us? Well, the problem is someone is caught in sin. Or what happens when we are caught in sin? Now, let's break this down for a moment. Okay, the, the, this first word, this idea of being caught, has the element of, of surprise, actually. I was kind of fascinated when I discovered that in my word study, that it, it carries this connotation of, of being surprised. So it's this idea of, man, I can't believe this sin occurred. I, I can't believe this, this happened. Now, that's an interesting thing for us to process, because if you're like me, on one level, sin should never really surprise us, right? Because... We live in a broken world, and we're sinful people. And so it's not that we are going to be shocked when, when mistakes and shortcomings happen. But what I loved about this definition is that it served as a reminder that we should never grow comfortable with sin. Right? We, we should be disappointed because we haven't been called to sin. We've been called to holiness. And so we should aspire to it. We should long for it. Right? There should be this, this discomfort with sin. We, we should be surprised because, man, it's not what we were aiming for. Right? And so there is this, this challenge here in, in the way in which we first read this verse just to see that, man, we should never grow comfortable with the sin that exists around us. And so that's one of the first things that we see is this being caught in sin. Now, sin itself here um, really has this idea of, of falling or stumbling. Okay? Now, I, I, I want to expand our discussion of sin this morning, okay? I, I think this verse is speaking very concretely to the mistakes that we make, and we're, we're going to dive into that here in just a second. But for the purposes of our conversation as well, I, I want to acknowledge that sometimes we get caught in sin in a lot of different ways, right? Think about the many different ways you can fall. Sometimes we fall because we are. We're walking the wrong way. We take the wrong path. We move too quickly. We move uh, in the wrong direction, whatever it is, and we fall based on our own accord. But sometimes we fall because others trip us, because others push us down, right? Because, because of no fault of our own. So sometimes being caught in sin, at least what I want us thinking about today, is acknowledging that sometimes brokenness just finds its way to you. Sometimes it's the shortcomings and mistakes that another person has made that have impacted your life. And now as a result, it's bringing you down as well. 
And so we all begin to be surrounded by this, this brokenness and this sinfulness. Right? And so how do we respond when we find ourselves just caught in this stumbling, caught in this falling that we often know is sin? Now, one of the ways that I think we need to really acknowledge and diagnose this problem is to also be mindful of the progression that sin typically takes in the, in the mistakes that we tend to fall victim to that lead us to a life of sin, right? So if you think about the progression, here's typically what you see happen. It usually starts with something that we look to for stability begins to be weakened, right? Relationships change, right? Uh, maybe a marriage begins to falter. Maybe you have a bad day at work or, or, or something happens when, when what you're looking for for stability becomes weakened. And when that becomes weakened, the next step is the temptation. And now all of a sudden, because this has been weakened, you're a little bit more likely to listen to the temptation. Right? And that's when the voice comes in and says, well, yeah, maybe you should just take one more drink. Maybe you should go out with that crowd. You should gossip about that person because it will feel good after what they did to you. You should respond to that advance or that flirtation from that coworker because things aren't good at home. And you have that, that thought and that temptation. And once that emerges, we take the next step and we begin to rationalize it. Right? We, we think, well, yeah, you know, that would make this feel better. That would be fulfilling on some level. And so I think I'll go through, you know, God will forgive me. I know he's a God of grace. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. And we begin to to rationalize the behavior. And once we're done rationalizing, then we do it. The next step, right? We commit the act. And even if we begin to have a sense of remorse in the act of, of some mistake or some choice of sin, a lot of times in that moment we say, well, you know what? I'm already this far. I'm just going to go ahead and see it through. And so we commit the act. Now, once we've gone through this, then the side effects of that, the consequences, the first is that we realize that the temptation was a lie. Right? It wasn't as fulfilling as we thought it would be. It wasn't as, as satisfying as we had hoped. And so now we're dealing with shame. Now we're dealing with remorse, regret, with guilt. And once we've, we've gone through this, then we have to suffer the last phase, or the second to last phase, which is the consequences, right? the fallout. Now a relationship is broken. A marriage does get weaker. Things do begin to falter. There are consequences for our poor decisions, and we have to deal with that fallout. Now, the scariest phase is the last one, and what typically happens at the last one is that maybe we go through those steps over and over and over again until eventually we arrive at this last phase, which is where we just become hardened to sin as a whole. We just become callous to it. Don't even care. Don't even care that it's wrong. Don't even care that we're making mistakes. Maybe not even be aware of it. Not even cognizant of it. That's the scariest place to be. But that's typically how it happens, some form of that progression. And so either you go through that progression, somebody else goes through that progression, and then takes you down with you. But eventually we all get caught in this life of sin. So the question is that if that's the problem, what do we do with it? Right, so what are we supposed to do when those things happen? When we encounter these shortcomings and mistakes, we just pretend like it's not there? Just turn a blind eye to it? Just become indifferent? Chastise people? Ostracize? How do we respond to shortcomings and mistakes and failures? Well, that's what Paul gives us a template for in this verse. Right? Here's what he says. The first thing we need to do, what we need to do to respond to this problem is restore. Right? We seek restoration. Now, this word restore, it, it literally means to fix that which is broken. It's a medical term that is used to say, like, you're going to fix a broken bone. Right? It's, it's to mend the broken. 
And with this term, uh, we also to see, can see a connotation that it implies to be equipped. It's an equipping. And I think that's such an important concept for us to understand when we start talking about restoration. Because restoration does not mean that all of a sudden we just get to eradicate temptation and problems of sin in our lives. Right? It's not that we all of a sudden just become immune to potential shortcomings and failures. Right? What it means is, is that we're equipped to face these temptations in the future. Right? They're not going to go away. They're still going to be there. But now we've been equipped through the process of restoration. Right? And so we need to embrace this idea of equipping if we're truly going to embrace the idea of restoration. Let, let me say it this way. Um, one, one other personal update that has happened recently, and we've tried to share some of this with you all, is my wife and I have been uh, in this journey of, of an adoption. And back a couple months ago, we were matched with a, a sweet little boy in China. And through the course of the holiday break, we actually received our travel dates. And so we've been working through all the details. And here in the next uh, couple of weeks, we're actually going to get on a plane to China and fly over there and bring our little boy home, and we're super excited about it. There, there will be a couple of Sundays that, that we have to miss here, uh, so we covet your prayers. But as we've been working through these travel dates, we've been having to identify airlines and flights and itineraries and juggle all those schedules, and it kind of has taken me back to my previous job as a missions pastor and having to do a lot of international travel. And, um, you know, the, the thing is, is that I've never loved flying. Never. And so it's kind of this interesting situation because we feel 100% called to this, to this boy, to, to adoption. We feel like this is, this is our son. But the only way to fulfill that calling is to get on a plane. There, there is no other way to do it. And, and so the, the problem with flying for me is that at times it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, I'm not a huge fan of airports. But listen, I can't just make this happen without having to go through those things. So the only way to really pursue this calling is to equip myself and my family. I say, hey, here's the path forward. We're, we're going to encounter inconveniences. We're going to encounter struggles and discomforts, but we can prepare ourselves so that we can navigate this journey and pursue God's calling. It's the same thing, right? If, if we're going to pursue God's calling in our lives, right, we have to recognize that to live in this fleshly body and to live in this broken world, there are going to be challenges. There are going to be temptations. There are going to be things that are going to try to side rail us and detour us and make our pursuit of that calling inconvenient. We can't eliminate those things, but we can't equip ourselves to navigate it well, right? That's restoration. Now, here's the other thing I love about this call to restoration. It's an imperative. This is not a suggestion. This is not Paul saying, hey, if, if you want to, may I suggest restoration? No, he's, he's commanding it. This is what you do. Listen, we have to take sin seriously. We have to take the responsibility of restoration and equipping the saints seriously. And the good news in a passage like this is that God wants to restore. That's what he desires for this problem of sin. That's what he has done through Jesus. Right? That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in his great love for us, he has sent us his son as a savior so that he can lift us up out of the muck and the mire and restore us to relationship with him. This is the hope of the gospel. And so the good news for each of us this morning is that if you come in here and you sit down and you think about all the shortcomings and all the failures and all the mistakes and all these things that you feel are heavy and burdened on your heart, God is saying, I want to restore you. He doesn't want to, to cast you aside. He doesn't want to forget you. He wants to love you. He wants to restore you. See, we get to embrace the hope that we see in the psalmist. Let me read for you Psalm 40 that paints such a beautiful picture of it. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me 
out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. And if you have made some of the worst mistakes, if you come in here today with that feeling of failure, with all that guilt and all that shame, hear me. He wants to reach down and pull you up. Set your feet upon a rock. Give you a new song to sing. What do we do about the problem of sin? We, we restore. We seek restoration. All right now, who does it? All right, how does this take place? Who, who is it that brings about this restoration? Well, he says, those who live by the Spirit. All right, those who live by the Spirit are the ones that, that bring about this restoration. And so essentially what he's saying is, the community of faith, right? The church. And that's an important thing for us to, to acknowledge and embrace this morning as well. Because a lot of times, what happens for us is we tend to want to run to the world when we make shortcomings and mistakes. Because when we run to the world, our shortcomings and mistakes can often stay hidden or at least unaddressed. Because the world really is indifferent and doesn't care because that's where sin takes place. And so we avoid the community of faith, we avoid the church, we avoid the transparency that's required, we run to the world because there we can stay hidden. Right there the world will say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. Everyone's doing whatever rationalization we need. And so one of the things that we have to see this morning is where are you running? What are you pressing into? Right, the, the Spirit... Those who live by the Spirit are the only ones that are truly going to have the maturity and the equipping and the understanding of how to appropriately deal with sin. Because we have Scripture, we have God's guidance, we have prayer, right? That, that's where it needs to exist. And so if you are dealing with those shortcomings, if you are dealing with those struggles, where are you running? Where are you seeking refuge? Part of what we need to recognize is that running to the world doesn't make things easier. I can't remember if I've shared this story with you all or not, um, and so if I have, you get to hear it again. Um, but growing up in, in high school, you know, one of the challenges about living in Abilene, Texas is you kind of have to create your own entertainment, which is a really dangerous thing to entrust to a high school boy, and, um, because we're stupid, and we think of stupid things. And so one afternoon, a group of, of my friends were sitting around, we were bored, and, and we said, hey, I got an idea. Let's um, break in to our friends' houses and let's mess up their rooms. Brilliant, right? And, and it sounded like an awesome idea, and so we did. We knew a couple of our friends that lived in my neighborhood that they were gone that day, and so we, we knew how to, like, which doors they left unlocked and which windows we could pop open. So we got into their homes, so we rearranged their rooms. We, like, kind of, like, you know, it's called rolling. You know, some people call it TPing and everything, but we, we call it rolling, and we rolled the inside of their rooms. I mean, it was just weird. I don't know what we were thinking, but we thought it was so clever that then we just kind of hung out in their house and started baking a pizza and... We just, I don't know. And so all of a sudden, here we are, like, just thinking we're awesome when you hear this car come speeding into the driveway, honk the horn, and then I hear my mom's voice shout out, Jeremiah, and I'm telling you, my friends scattered, right? They ran every direction away from her, right, into an alley, into a backyard. Now, I knew, though, I knew that voice, right? And I was like, uh-uh, running ain't going to help me here, right? So I just walked out to the driveway. I tried to play it cool. I was like, what's up, mom? You know? She's like, what are y'all doing? I'm like, just hanging out, making a pizza. You know, I mean, trying to pretend like it was not a big deal at all. Of course, I had a great punishment as a result of it. Um, but the reality was, is I knew that running from her was not going to help. Right? That, that I had to admit the mistake. I had to admit the misstep. 
and I had to press into the one that could teach me and restore me and make me accountable. Right? Too often, we run the wrong direction. One of the things that grieves me the most is when I see somebody fall or I see some fallenness take place in their life and they become too embarrassed and too ashamed to come to church. The one place they should feel the most comfortable to come. Why is that? Why is that? That's the responsibility of the church and yet so often people don't want to come here when we face these shortcomings and these failures. And I think the reason is, is because we haven't really addressed the third part of this verse, which is how. How do we restore people? Paul gives us two very important commands here. He says, uh, restore gently and watch yourself so you won't be tempted. Now, I want to handle both of those, but I want to go in in kind of a reverse order. I want to start with watch yourselves. He he gives us a word of caution. He says, you need to be careful when you you address somebody caught in sin and when you seek this restoration, because you yourself, you, you may be tempted. And so there's a couple of things that we can learn from this word of caution. One is, is to acknowledge that, you know, other people can bring us down. Right? That, that's a reality. And so if you confront somebody engaged in sinful behavior, they, they may tempt you to engage in that same behavior. Right? And that is something we have to be cautious of. But I, wanna, I actually want to press that idea a little bit further because the reality is, is that sometimes we're not going to be tempted to that same behavior at all. Right? I, I don't think it means that if you're going to confront somebody that's perhaps engaging in adultery, that all of a sudden you also are going to be tempted to commit adultery. But what I do think happens is that a lot of times we're tempted to respond in an inappropriate way. And so we respond to sinful behavior with more sinful behavior. It it may not be the same sin, but it's still sin. And so we see somebody that's fallen, and we respond with arrogance. We respond with harshness, with judgment. Right? We, we, We shame them so that we can make ourselves feel better. And so we fall into this temptation, right? We, we respond to sinful behavior with sinful behavior. And so Paul's right. He's saying, careful. Careful in how you seek this. Because you could be tempted to fall just the same. And so we need to take it seriously and exhibit this sort of caution. I think one of the things that we have to remember is that moment that we feel like we are not susceptible to sin is probably the moment that we're the most susceptible to sin. None of us is above it, ever. We can all fall victim to this. We all make mistakes, which is really what leads to gentleness. Right? This is where I think we, we find the ability to, to foster that posture of gentleness because gentleness means uh, to be meek or to be humble. Right? And so humility helps us understand that we're no better than the person that's caught in this brokenness. They're no worse than we are. We empathize with them because we've been there ourselves. We too have made similar mistakes. We are all broken people. And if we can maintain that humility, then it helps us respond with gentleness. And now all of a sudden, we become a safe place for people to fall because they know they're going to be caught with loving and gentle arms. And that's what we have to pursue and maintain. We have to understand that the mark of of the community of faith is one of gentleness. And we, we, we have this told us over and over and over again. Colossians 3, clothe yourselves in compassion, humility, and gentleness. Ephesians 4, right? I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be patient with one another, gentle with one another, bearing with one another. You want to you pursue the calling that you've received? 
pursue it in gentleness. Somebody asks you why you have this hope that you have. What does 1 Peter 3 tell us? That we respond. We always have an answer to give, but we respond with gentleness and respect. Titus 3. Not only are we supposed to be gentle to the community of faith, we're gentle towards everyone. It's the posture. It's the mark of the community of faith. Why? Because it's the mark of the Savior. Right? Matthew tells us in his gospel that Jesus himself describes himself as gentle. His burden is light. So this has to be our posture. This is how we respond. And so let me, let me just close with this. Let me just speak practically for a moment. What does that look like for us? How do we, how do we practice this? My, my hope, my prayer, and my desire is that we know this is a place that when people fall, they know they can fall into loving arms. Right? Loving arms that are going to be there to catch them gently with kindness and humility, but also seek restoration and equipping. How do we do that? How do we make that more than just a concept that we talk about on a Sunday morning? Well, part of what I would encourage us is to, number one, take the responsibility of restoration seriously. That This is the responsibility of the church, right, to equip the saints. And so we need to embrace this. We need to see it as important. We're not here just to hear a message and sing some songs and go. We're here because we know we're all living in this life of sin, and we need help. We're going to fall, and we need people that we can fall into. So we have to take it seriously. And so how do we demonstrate that seriousness? Number one, we have to be willing to confess our own shortcomings and failures. Even if it's somebody else that's pulled us down or we're just caught in a life of, of heartache because of somebody else's failures or somebody else's mistakes, but it's just drowning us and consuming us, or maybe it's the mistakes that we've made, whatever it is, we have to be willing to confess it. But the, the, the last thing the devil wants you to do is to speak openly about it. So secrecy will never lead to restoration. So we have to be willing to speak. And so let me encourage you. This is a safe place. And I want it to be a safe place. So first and foremost, you have a staff you can come to. If there is something that you are struggling with, if there is a failure, there's a shortcoming, or there's just something that is, that is burdening you, you have a staff that you can come to, and, and I give you the assurance that we will respond in a posture of gentleness and love and kindness. And humility because we're no better than you. So you can come to the staff, but at the same time, I'd encourage you to come to each other. Right? My hope and my prayer is that through your time here, you're building meaningful relationships, whether that's through your Sunday Connect group, a discipleship group, or whatever. You're fostering community, and there are people in your life that you can go to and say, man, I am struggling with this. I need help. And if somebody comes to you with that, you would respond with wisdom. You'd be careful. You'd be gentle and you'd help equip them, right? You'd help them find whatever it is that they need. You'd help them on this journey of restoration, right? And if you don't have those sorts of relationships, then, then we need to pursue them, and we need to cultivate them. Right? And if we do that, right, if we create a safe place where we can be a church where people can come and say, man, I, I've fallen, I'm hurting, but I need to be restored, and we receive people gently and with loving arms, well, then we get to see the power of the gospel truly take place. Because this is the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of restoration. It's the hope for restoring in the midst of sinfulness. And that's the sort of church, that's the message that we want to consistently proclaim and promote. I want to I leave you with this quote that we have from John Stott that I think says it so well. 
And I offer it as a word of encouragement to each of us this morning. He says, if we walked by the Spirit, we would love one another more. And if we loved one another more, we would bear one another's burdens. And if we bore one another's burdens, we would not shrink from seeking to restore a brother or sister who has fallen into sin. But further, if we obeyed this apostolic instruction as we should, much unkind gossip would be avoided, much serious backsliding prevented, the good of the church advanced in the name of Christ glorified. That's our hope, right? That we could be a safe place that seeks restoration so that the good of the church would be advanced in the name of Christ would be glorified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we admit and confess that so many times, God, we, we struggle <coughs> and we fail and we don't know how to respond to these mistakes in our lives or the things that have happened around us that create this heartache, create these, these challenges. And so I pray that you would give us all wisdom, Father, in knowing how to respond, both personally and, and corporately as a church, God, that, that if there's anyone in this room today that has carried a burden of, of sinfulness and sinful behavior that just continues to weigh on them, Father, that they'd stop running that they would trust you and they would trust uh, the community that they have here and they would confess it. God, that they would be able to find the power of restoration in this community of faith. And Father, as a church family, that we would be a safe place for people to fall. That we would take the responsibility of restoration seriously. And we would do so, Father, because we're constantly mindful of the way this gospel receives us in our own failures. God, that it doesn't ask us or demand us to be perfect. It just asks us to be honest, to be repentant, and to be obedient to following Jesus. And so may that be something we pursue as individuals as well as a church so that your kingdom could be advanced and your name would be glorified. For it's in that precious and holy name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.